Weather Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Good morning and welcome to EcoReport. For WFHB, I'm Phil Casper. And I'm Juliana Daly. We begin our show today with an update on the emerald ash borer. The emerald ash borer has been wreaking havoc on Indiana ash trees since 2004. The invasive Asian beetle is responsible for widespread destruction of ash tree populations across the state. The Indiana Parks Alliance is warning Hoosiers that if aggressive action isn't taken to combat the insect, almost all of Indiana's ash trees will be gone within the next 10 years. Indiana Parks Alliance President Tom Homan says the organization is taking donations that will go towards treating ash trees against the deadly emerald ash borer. There's some parts of the state where it hasn't really done too much damage yet. The north is pretty much wiped out, uh, so it's mainly in the a little bit in the central, west central, and uh, and southwest, and spotty here and there, wherever we can find some ash trees and uh, those parks or nature preserves that aren't past the point of saving. You can have a little bit of damage in if it gets to about, uh, you, you start seeing die-off in the uh, branches in the trees, and once you see about a third of the tree dead, it's probably too late to save it. It gets, gets iffy. To treat the trees, a special insecticide is injected into holes drilled near ground level. The insecticide kills emerald ash borers as it is drawn through the roots. Homan said the insecticide is safe for pollinators like honeybees and that it takes around $200 to treat an ash tree for up to three years. Homan says the ash tree is a vital indigenous species in Indiana. First of all, they're a timber tree. They're not, a, not like oak or anything, but certainly the most famous use probably is for any sports fan is for baseball bats. Uh, that's the, the tree of choice for using that uh, for uh, making baseball bats. And uh, it is used in, uh, for furniture and other uh, hardwood uses. It's a, uh, a good tree for that use. It also is important, like any uh, native plant or tree in the ecosystem, uh, it pays a big uh, part in that. They make up about 10 to 20 percent of the uh, species in the forest, so you can imagine wiping that out. That's a big, uh, big factor. If ash trees continue to die off at the current rate, the state is looking at a loss of 10 to $20 billion, according to an Indiana Parks Alliance press release. Holman hopes the Parks Alliance campaign will stop the devastation of emerald ash borers and benefit future trees. If we save these ash trees, they're a seed source for the next generation uh, coming up and can provide the ash trees in the woods again. And then hopefully they, some of those ash trees might develop a... Uh, uh, tolerance for the emerald ash borer to where it's not going to kill them the next time. 
the Indiana Parks Alliance hopes to raise $20,000 within the next few months. More information can be found at indianaparksalliance.org. Also in Indiana, the state's Department of Environmental Management is considering a plan by Duke Energy to dispose of millions of gallons of coal ash waste. Environmental groups are asking policymakers to reject it, saying it poses a health hazard for people and wildlife. Indiana is requiring Duke to prepare closure plans for 20 coal ash lagoons, many of which are leaking and in the Wabash and Ohio River floodplains. Lagoons aren't currently lined. Duke has proposed a plan to cap them in place, but Earth Justice Attorney Jenny Cassell says there would be no barrier between the ash and the shallow aquifers that adjoin the rivers. She calls that a prescription for pollution. In 2014, for example, Duke's mishandling of coal ash caused a massive spill of coal ash wastewater into a 70-mile stretch of the Dan River in North Carolina. Cassell says that a better option is to excavate the ash and transfer it to dry, lined landfills away from streams and rivers. Duke is now doing just that at plants in North and South Carolina, but has not proposed it for the Hoosier State. Behind a banner that read, Give Keystone XL the Boot, Protect Our Land, Water, and Climate, 600 people marched in Lincoln, Nebraska on August 6th to protest construction of the Keystone XL pipeline. The demonstration took place as the Nebraska Public Service Commission was preparing to spend a week considering whether to approve the pipeline. The hearings marked the last major barrier TransCanada, the builder of the pipeline, must surmount before construction of the pipeline. The Keystone XL expansion would transport almost 830,000 additional barrels of tar sands oil daily. The proposed expansion route extends from Canada's tar sands through Montana, South Dakota, and Nebraska, where it would connect to previously completed sections of pipeline. From Nebraska, oil is piped east to Illinois refineries and south to the Gulf of Mexico for export. Nebraska's Public Service Commission is considering three potential routes through the state. Jane Klebe, who heads Bold Nebraska, a grassroots group opposing the pipeline, said, quote, There is absolutely no reason that the Public Service Commission would grant a permit to a foreign corporation. Shipping foreign tar sands to the foreign export market when that has nothing to do with Nebraska's public interest, unquote. A decision from the Public Service Commission is expected later this fall. In other energy sector news, South Carolina utilities have permanently ceased construction of the two half-built VC summer nuclear reactors. Construction of the facilities was pursued by Westinghouse in Jenkinsville, South Carolina. The utility said nuclear power is, quote, prohibitively expensive, unquote. The project has already cost $11 billion and is about six years behind schedule. It was once seen as a milestone for a revival of nuclear power. The inability to control the cost of completion and time to completion is the basic economic failure of this recent collapse of a nuclear power project. As far back as 1985, Forbes magazine described the development of commercial nuclear power as, quote, the largest managerial disaster in U.S. business history, where only the blind and biased can say the money was well spent, unquote. The only two reactors still under construction in the U.S. are in Georgia. The projected cost of completing these reactors has increased by more than $25 billion. 
While the popularity of nuclear power continues to wane in the U.S., Canada is poised to increase the amount of nuclear waste it exports here. The Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission is preparing to amend the licenses of 12 Canadian nuclear power plants. This amendment would permit them to export their radioactive waste to the U.S. and other countries. Canada has already been sending some nuclear waste to the U.S. for what it calls processing, but the amendments would unleash unlimited amounts of waste for export. Numerous nuclear waste processors are licensed by state nuclear agencies. These processors burn, shred, melt, acid etch, and launder radioactive material. Some facilities are known to intentionally release radioactive waste to standard garbage dumps, incinerators, and commercial recycling streams. The material is used to manufacture ordinary household items, radioactive metals, plastics, concrete, and other materials end up in such items as zippers, babies' toys, belt buckles, and cars. The U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission used to require licenses permitting nuclear waste to be imported from other countries. The Commission changed the rules to allow waste to enter the U.S. without a specific license if they were called materials, despite their radioactive contamination. And that's the news for this week. I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Phil Casper. We love to hear from our listeners. Contact us about stories we've aired, or if you have ideas for future stories, please send emails to earth at wfhb.org. Today's Eco Report feature, Kim Ferreira of the Hoosier Environmental Council discusses her organization's fight against factory farms in Indiana. In an effort to defeat factory farm pollution, environmental groups across Indiana are turning their focus to educating community members about the health risks associated with confined animal feeding operations, or CAFOs. Kim Ferraro, senior staff attorney and director of agriculture policy at Hoosier Environmental Council, said that over the past few decades, these CAFOs have had an adverse impact on Indiana's rural communities. Over the last several decades, um, the way we produce animals for foods um, for food has become an industrialized process where livestock are grown on um, what are called concentrated animal feeding operations. You refer to them as factory farms, where literally thousands of animals um, are confined in one space in a small area, and their waste um, is collected in massive pits and lagoons and then spread on property uh, near where people live. And this has, um, over the last several decades, as this has occurred, um, really devastated rural communities uh, and quality of life for people who live in these areas because of the noxious odors and dangerous air emissions that they're exposed to, not to mention um, manure spills and uh, runoff from farm fields of this manure into waterways. Uh, Livestock manure, just like human waste, is known to contain uh, pathogens as well as uh, nutrients like phosphorus and nitrogen. And when those things get into waterways, which we know that they do in Indiana because the number one polluter of our uh, waterways is E. coli, which indicates that animal waste is present, 
Um, so the, the nutrients um, can cause uh, toxic blue-green algae blooms, which we're seeing happen more frequently in the summertime. And, of course, the pathogens getting into groundwater um, I'm sorry, I misspoke. The nutrients can cause the phosphorus and nitrogen can cause the algae blooms and the uh, E. coli and other pathogen, pathogens um, are a great health risk, especially when they get into drinking water supplies um, with respect to um, blue baby syndrome, for example, with children, um, also with all sorts of uh, gastrointestinal diseases and, and other things that can make people sick and even pose um, uh, life risks, uh, you know, can pose death risks to people if they're exposed to them. On the air front, animal waste produces uh, noxious and dangerous air emissions like hydrogen sulfide and ammonia and particulate matter uh, known to uh, certainly increase asthma symptoms and people who have asthma or other respiratory illnesses, it, it poses a great danger to them. Um, it can also, I'm no public health expert, I'm, I'm a lawyer, but I can tell you from the public health studies that have been done on this, um, uh, hydrogen sulfide is a neurotoxin, uh, ammonia causes burning and itching eyes. They're all, all of them are noxious and can make you know, people sick upon exposure. The Hoosier Environmental Council lobbies for environmental protections for Indiana communities. Ferrero says one victory for the Environmental Council was the defeat of House Bill 1494, which experts say would have weakened factory farm laws across the state. The legislation that was defeated last year would have um, undermined the regulations that our state reg- environmental regulatory agency item follows um, with respect to confined feeding operations. And the law would have um, undermined the situations in which IDEM has to give notice to impacted neighbors. It would have um, undermined the permitting requirements um, for CAFOs that are expanding. It essentially would have allowed them to expand without limit, without having to get a permit, um, among other things. But it was mainly uh, aimed at undermining the um, already weak regulations that we have at the state level for confined feeding operations. We have sort of a 10-bullet-point list of ways that um, we'd like to see policy improved. One is to address the very serious gap in federal and state regulation of CAFOs. Um, State regulation currently only addresses how manure is managed at a CAFO um, to protect water quality. It doesn't in any way place limits on air emissions um, that are redu- that are produced or generated at a confined feeding operation, although we know that um, unhealthy amounts of hydrogen sulfide, ammonia, and particulate matter is um, released. So we would like to see legislation that addresses those air emissions. IDEM, the state agency, also currently has no authority to deny a permit to a CAFO based on its um, impact to public health. Um, so IDEM can't say no to a permit if a CAFO is being proposed in an improper location. So we'd like to give IDEM that authority. Um, those are those are two main areas, but um, some others are better setbacks from waterways, uh, greater setbacks from um, parks and residential homes and schools. This issue is not just a concern for people that live in rural areas. People who live in urban areas should be concerned as well. Um, Animals that are raised in confinement like this are given uh, antibiotics prophylactically uh, to keep them healthy from living in these 
um, very stressful and um, oftentimes not clean conditions. And as a result of that uh, prophylactic use of antibiotics, we're seeing um, antibiotic-resistant disease emerging like MRSA, um, which uh, studies have shown um, is increasing in you know populations all over the United States because of that uh, antibiotic use. Um, people should be concerned about uh, you know the treatment of animals if they care about animal welfare. Um, this is a, a pretty abusive situation for for farm animals, and also climate change. Um, we know that agriculture, livestock agriculture, is now uh, responsible for eighteen up to eighteen percent of global greenhouse gas emissions that have contributed cr- contributed to climate change. Ferrero said that Indiana's over 3 million hogs, 95,000 cattle, 22 million egg-laying heads, and another 4.7 million broiler chickens on factory farms produce as much untreated manure as 87 million people, nearly 14 times Indiana's population. For WFHB, I'm Wes Martin. An expert on particular issues of environmental concern, a concerned citizen interested in learning more about local and national environmental issues, EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. For more information, email us at earth at wfhb.org or call 812-323-1200. And today, in lieu of an In Nature short, we'll air part of the most recent Big Talk with Michael Glab, Catherine Katie Pilachowski of the IU Astronomy Department gives pointers on how to view the upcoming American eclipse, the first full solar eclipse visible from the contiguous United States since the year 1979. The question is, if I'm walking down the street at the period of totality and I'm not looking up in the sky because I don't want to, because I don't want to burn my retinas, right? Right. Okay. How will I know? Will I know? Will I be able to see a difference? You will be able to see a difference. Uh-huh. There will be a, some dimming. It will be a little darker than usual. It will mm-hmm. be like on a very cloudy day. Yeah. Um, I think the most there are two really striking things that, that you would see just walking down the street. One is if you happen to walk under a tree, you will see many small crescent-shaped bright spots. These are, these are basically... Images of the sun produced by little cracks between the leaves. Yeah. Um, and they'll produce images of the eclipse sun, so you see many little crescents. Very similar to when we were kids, we would make the little pinhole exactly. boxes, allowing exactly. a tiny little ray to come in. And you get an image of the sun from there. Yeah. So it'll be a beautiful crescent. The other thing that I think will be really obvious is your shadow. So normally shadows are pretty fuzzy. And that's because the sun is half a degree across in angle. Mm -hmm. So the edges of the shadows are fuzzy. You get light from one side of the sun, the other side of the sun. That displaces your shadow a little bit, and it looks fuzzy. But when we have that thin crescent, shadows will become very sharp. So if you hold out your hand, you'll be able to easily see the shadows of your individual fingers. Oh, that's what we we recommend that to everybody in Bloomington. I think so. Hold out your hand, spread your fingers, 
and see a nice shadow on Very the concrete. Very sharp shadow. Yeah, so I recommend that every one of your viewers get a solar viewer so they can actually look directly at the solar eclipse. If they can't, and don't look, don't look without a viewer, but if you don't have a viewer, get an old shoebox. Yeah. You can make a pinhole camera, cut out a little rectangle on one side, put some tinfoil on it, punch a very small hole. Right. On the inside, the opposite end of the box, put a white card. And then if you point, cover it up, cut a little hole in the side so you can see the white card. If you point the pinhole at the sun, it'll form an image of the sun, of the eclipse sun, right on the white card. And now it's time for our weekly events calendar. McCormick's Creek State Park will offer a falls hike on Saturday, August 19th from 10 to 10.30 a.m. Take a hike down to the waterfalls while learning about how the falls were formed. Meet at the Canyon Inn. Many places will be offering you the opportunity to view the upcoming eclipse on Monday, August the 21st. The first visible eclipse across North America since the year 1979. Payne Town State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake will be hosting an eclipse event from noon to 2.30 p.m. Countdown will take place from noon to 1 p.m. Solar viewing glasses will be available to view the progress of the eclipse from 1 to 2.30 p.m. The event will be canceled if skies are overcast or stormy. You may also view the eclipse at Ivy Tech Community College, located at 200 Daniels Way in Bloomington at the Outside Commons. Free sun viewing visors, solar telescopes, some shade, and ice water will be available from 1 to 4 p.m. If weather is inclement, the event will be held indoors, where a live stream of the eclipse will be broadcast online. The event is free. There will be a firefly watch on Saturday, August 26th at RCA Community Park in Bloomington from 9 to 10 p.m. Fireflies may be disappearing from the landscape. Surveys that count and identify firefly species are conducted to learn about the geographic distribution of fireflies, their activity during the summer, and the effects that artificial lights and pesticides have on them. Learn how to register and monitor your own backyard habitat and help gather data at the park. The event is free and is appropriate for all ages. Finally, the Spring Mill State Park Cave Weekend is coming up on Saturday, August 26th and Sunday, August 27th. Take the weekend to learn about Spring Mill's unique karst landscape. At 10 a.m., you may hike Donaldson Cave. At 1 p.m., enjoy an Into the Caves presentation at the Lakeview Activity Center. From 1 to 3 p.m., a hands-on cave table will be set up so you may learn more about the caves up close. At 5 p.m., learn about the caves of Spring Mill Valley at Weaver's Cabin, and then at 6 p.m., there will be a live bat presentation at the Lakeview Activity Center. What a wonderful way to spend the weekend. That wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's news stories were written by Cole Stinson and Linda Green. The feature was produced by Wes Martin. Rebecca Muller edited the script. 
Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Our engineer is Sarah Vaughn. Executive producer is Wes Martin. For WFHB, I'm Phil Casper. And I'm Juliana Daly. Join us on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. before Democracy Now! and on Fridays at 5 p.m. before Kite Line for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. Until then, Eco Report encourages you to take direct action to defend the Earth. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the Earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.